A warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. Thank you for listening today. My name is Felina. I'm the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, which is an award-winning social enterprising dedicating to supported leaders with babies and young children. With this podcast and, of course, our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career to the senior leadership level whilst enjoying your young children. Today, I am interviewing Paul Fisher, who is the program director at Oxford University's Side Business School for their negotiation program. And I wanted to talk to Paul because every single big challenge seems to have an element of negotiation in the lives of senior leaders, in the lives of parents. And so I just wanted to use this podcast as an excuse to chat to Paul and find out what we can learn from the research. So I really learned a lot from our conversation and I hope you do too. Enjoy the conversation. Paul, very warm welcome to having you to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you. And as I mentioned briefly while we had our pre-introductory conversation, the reason why I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because I really want to talk to you. So I can't wait to grill you over the next hour or so. And feel free to ask me anything, obviously, as well. Why don't we start off with you just telling us a little bit about who you are, who's in your family and what you do for work? Okay, great. Well, my name is Paul Fisher. My position is I am the program director of the Oxford Programme on Negotiation at Side Business School and I'm associate fellow at the school as well. And Side Business School is the business school of the University of Oxford. And we essentially run negotiation programmes. So we have two programmes every year where some of the world's leading negotiators come to Oxford for a week and learn the key principles and the art of science and negotiation. So I I run that programme. We also do lots of customised negotiation programmes for companies for individuals. So yeah, it's a really exciting area to be in. Negotiation has developed hugely over the last 20 years. There's been a lot of research and a lot of development in terms of teachings around it. So it's a really fun um, area to be in. And I've got two kids. I've got a 17-year-old girl, 13-year-old boy. I live in the Cotswolds. I'm married to an American from Alabama. And so yeah, that's me. And I've, I've been in negotiation, been working in negotiation pretty much off and on over the last 20 years but I do lots of other stuff as well. So I have what you call a portfolio career. So it's nicely varied. I don't Mm. work full time for Oxford, but I spend quite a lot of time at the business school, but I do lots of other stuff as well. I have my own consultancy, helping companies in terms of communications and messaging. I run other programs as well. I run a program totally separate from Oxford, which focuses on small countries around the world and their financial sectors. And they come to Oxford in the Isle of Man every year to learn the latest best practices in managing financial sectors. So it's fun. Yeah, I have an interesting wow. life. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like a kid. And, um, but tell me, why did you get interested in negotiation? Well, towards the end of the 90s, I was actually living in the States, in Atlanta. And I worked for a big marketing agency over there. And we'd been involved in a number of negotiations, both internally and with clients. And it kind of really struck me that... Not many people were terribly good at negotiations. They had a sort of an approach to negotiations where really it was kind of like a competitive sport. You know, there was winners and losers and you tried to extract as much as you could for yourself at the expense of the other side. And and I realized that was a sort of self-defeating approach in actually negotiation. You know, ideally, you should be able to create value for both sides. And I sort of Mm -hmm. thought there was a real need, a real demand 
for negotiation teaching. My colleague of mine had actually been to a program in the States and thought it'd be a really good idea if we set up a similar program in the UK. So, mm-hmm. so we set up a negotiation program many years ago. This was a standalone program and we brought in all these amazing faculty from the US and the UK. And then we started partnering with Said Business School. And since then, we've been putting on the programs for the business school for 15 years. Sounds great. So I'm very interested. So you talked about Vin Vin and I'm from Switzerland and we see compromise as a really good thing. So are you saying then that when you negotiate, you should always aim to have, it's okay if both sides lower their expectations, but both sides get something from it as in the way that you said Vin Vin? Yes, I don't think they actually have to lower their expectation. I mean, compromise is, I mean, what we talk about in negotiation is try not to leave value on the table. You know, try and be creative. If you're in a negotiation, for example, where you're negotiating over price, see if you can add lots of other different issues as well. And you can actually kind of expand what we call the pie. We, we talk about, there's a term called the fixed pie bias, which is where it's like a pizza. And if you take a slice out of the pizza, that's gone. And, you know, that's been taken away and you negotiate over the remaining pizza. But we actually encourage people in negotiation to think innovatively and actually look to expand the pie. So, I mean, I think compromise slightly gives the impression that you kind of just meet halfway. Whereas I'd suggest, you know, really in in ideal negotiations, you look to actually expand. So you expand the value. I mean, one of the real issues in negotiation is people kind of leave value on the table, potential value that they could take because they just go for the kind of easy option. I mean, compromise is good to a certain extent. Compromise kind of gives the impression and we always encourage people. I mean, one of the key principles of negotiation is always to put yourself in the other side's shoes. So look at the negotiation from their perspective. And it's by sort of figuring out, you know, what they want to get out of the negotiation, what their pressures are, that you can actually kind of find mutually acceptable Mm. deals. So compromise is okay, but it kind of, you almost sort of fall slightly short in mm. terms of getting the full value out of negotiation. Does mm. that answer your question? No, it does make sense, actually. Yes. So I'm just thinking about this in the relation. So obviously, as you know, we run the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, mm-hmm. which is a nine-month program now online, as we're recording this during lockdown in uh, May 2020. Sure. Um, we support leaders with babies and young children to continue to progress on their careers. And obviously, many of them are negotiating in some shape or form. Now, many of them negotiate with their employers about flexible working requests. My thinking is probably now everyone, many people are working from home, but after lockdown, they will have to negotiate with their employers to be allowed in quotation marks to continue those arrangements. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, so with your model, what you should be doing then is to, you should try to find more value for your employer when you are working from home if you want to have is is that what you're saying yes and and for yourself as well I mean firstly I think when we do come out of lockdown you know you are in actually quite a strong position in terms of negotiating flexible working because in many many cases you know you one has proved over the last few months that you can work very effectively from home so so you're actually coming from quite a good starting point when you enter the negotiations with your employer I mean one thing we we talk about in negotiations firstly put yourself in the other side's shoes and secondly look to trade across different issues you know we say in negotiation you know if there's a lot of differences and a lot of issues to negotiate over that actually makes it more likely that you're going to get a really good deal which adds value to both sides and one of the key things in negotiation is we all look at things 
differently from different perspectives. So there's, there's things which are really important to you and there are things which are really important to your employer. And there are also things which are less important to your employer that they can give away and vice versa to you. So it's kind of like sort of trading across issues which are of high value to you and low cost to your employer and vice versa, if you see what I mean. So for example, in flexible working, you know, you can talk about some of the sort of benefits that your employer would get. You know, you could give them things which are quite easy for you to give away. So for example, you could say, I know we have, you know, the regular meetings on Tuesdays, the regular team meetings, you know, that could be a day that I could come into the office. And if it's not a big deal for you, that's something you can trade on, which is very beneficial to your employer. But on the, on the same side, there's things that are really important to you, which might not be so important to your employees. So the importance of, you know, having our half days working on a Friday so you can go and pick up your child from nursery or, or something along those lines. So there's lots of kind of different ways that you can trade across issues. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where you can create value in the negotiation. And say, for example, if you took it into a business context, if you were negotiating with a company, again, there's things which are important to your you know, your negotiation counterpart, which aren't important to you. You know, it could be something along the lines of, you know, when the product is delivered, you know, how, what the volume of the product should be. There's just kind of multiple issues, if you see what I mean, Mm -hmm. trade trade around. Yeah. So I've just come off from a call with a group of fellows who are just about to go back on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. And many of them do want to go down to, not all obviously, because it's great to work full time as well, but many of them want to go down from five days to three or four days, which yeah. is equally great. Mm. But what you're saying is when you are preparing for that conversation, you should make sure that you are figuring out what are the easy giveaways, like exactly. being there for a Tuesday team meeting or still running a particular project. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean it's, it's very useful, for example, before you go into the negotiation, just write down a list of all the issues, you know, all the issues which might be up for discussion and you can add different areas as well and then work out what you think is important for you. So you could grade that on, you know, between one and 10 and try and figure out what's really important to your employer in terms of what you know about them and grade that on one and 10. And it's mm. by working out where there's the differences that you can really start trading back and forth so you can actually make sort of concessions you can say you know if i come in on tuesday for example you know would it be okay if i work just a half day on friday you know so Mm -hmm. it's by sort of leveraging the different issues i mean it kind of links into one of the key issues in any negotiation really is preparation the work you do before you even enter the negotiation is vital to whether it's a success or not so i mean i'd say in a negotiation you know 80 percent of the reason why the negotiation is successful is all based on preparation beforehand. So it's really important to kind of work out before you get in touch with your employer, you know, what are my goals? What do I really want to get out of this? I think it was Henry Kissinger who said, if you don't know which road you're going on, you'll end up on the road to nowhere. So if you don't have that, have those clear goals, you're really going to be struggling. And it's also fine, you know, to actually put forward a proposal. So, you know, have a think about, you know, the things you could do what your ideal package could be and propose that to your employer because that actually links into another key concept in negotiation which is called anchoring have you ever heard of the term anchoring yes is it when you tell someone basically you're ready to sell your car for a thousand pounds but you tell 
people that you want to sell for 3,000 and then anything below that seems very cheap? Is, is yes, that- it's similar to that. I mean, basically people adjust rather than create when making decisions. So for example, if you say, I like to sell my car for 3,000 pounds, they will react to that based on the number you've given them, 3,000. Mm. So it's, it's a well-known kind of psychological bias. It happens the whole time in, you know, even experts are subject to it. It's just, you know, if, if for example, it's, it's not just figures, you know, it can work if you have a brainstorm and if you anchor the discussion around a particular issue, then everything is discussed around that issue. So for example, in a negotiation, if you put forward your suggestions, you know, this is my ideal aspiration in terms of, you know, working hours. I like to, you know, work Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, I'd like the opportunity to have, you know, the IT infrastructure at home, et cetera, et cetera. I like this number of days holiday. Quite often your employer might not accept all that, but the discussion would be based around what you presented. So, I mean, it's a simple concept of negotiation. A lot of people are afraid to, to make a first offer in a negotiation because they feel they're showing their hand too much. But actually, if you've done your research, making the first offer is very powerful in a negotiation. So the same concept applies when you're putting forward a proposal. You can anchor the discussions mm. based on your proposal. So you basically kind of take the initiative in the negotiation. Mm. I think that's really interesting because if you go... Again, just stick with this example of going for five or three days. So if you go to your employer and you go with a number of days that is so low that you think they're going to get angry at, yeah, and not that they should, but they might, mm. then that means that you haven't done your preparation on one hand, but also it could be a good thing. You should be courageous to make a low offer because then it anchors. Exactly. I mean, you need to be a little bit careful. There's, you don't want to make it too extreme where it will make the other counterpart, you know, angry. We have a term for it. It's called the chilling effect. So if you're trying to sell a car and, you, you know, you say instead of £3,000, you say, I'll sell it, you know, I want 20000 for it. And it's so ridiculous. It's so extreme that the person you're discussing it with will, will say, forget about it. This is ridiculous. I don't want to even go any further. You know, you're not taking this seriously. So, you know, if you said, you know, I want to bring down my hourly you know want to move from a five-day week to a two-hour week that might be a little bit too radical if you see what I mean and it might instigate you know sort of tension with your employer but certainly if you do your research you know if you say I want to go from a five-day week to a three-day week and what's really important about anchoring is if you can back it up with justifications as well so if you say the word because afterwards I want to do a three-day week because and then give three or four reasons why you want to do that and if you can you can leverage that based on how it's going to benefit your employer even better. So, I mean, it's actually a lot easier to try and, you know, if you've got a track record within the company, it's a lot easier to negotiate a good working package if, you know, if your boss has seen how good you are, you know, and you can, you can also, and I mean, another thing we talk about in negotiations is contingencies. And a contingency contract is when we're talking about something in the future that both sides have slightly differing, perspectives on so for example what you could say is you know let's go down to you know let's try the three days a week for the next six months and if i hit my target you know if you're in the sales force or you know if i meet my performance appraisals then you know let's agree to continue it for another two years so it's putting in that contingency actually sometimes helps Mm. push a negotiated deal across the line and i think there's something about taking the risk out as well 
Yeah, so, it does yeah. to a certain mm. extent. Yeah, because you know your your employer has you know when you're negotiating with them, they have a certain amount of risk and they have pressures on them as well because they they're probably reporting to someone else. And if it goes wrong, if they give you a package which doesn't work out or sales drop or you know they're going to face issues as well mm. so it's good for them in a way as well because it does mm. it takes the risk and it really gives flexibility flexibility is quite important in negotiation so if you can have a bit of flexibility it enables you to get deals over the line particularly if you're going slightly into the unknown so particularly if you know this is the first time you know an employee within that company has negotiated such a flexible working package you know it's good to have that contingency to start with mm. it looks like so in my view, for negotiation to work well, it's so important that you are at ease, which you only get, or I only get if I've done a lot of preparation. Mm. But being at ease and being calm can be I, I, quite I, difficult. Like, you know, I don't know how the people on your programs find it, but sometimes being in negotiation can be a very emotionally challenging thing because you're yeah. putting yourself out there. So do you have any views on how to deal with that? Well, I think it's important. I mean, negotiations can get quite emotional at times and you know that's very human I don't think people negotiate better when they are driven by emotions I don't think they tend to get as good a results you know their judgment is you know whether it be anger or hurt or you know if there's an issue with the relationship with your negotiation counterpart it can often sort of break down and either lead to acrimony or or a bad deal you know you might you know face someone who's really angry and you might just sort of cave in and say okay okay you know I'll I'll accept whatever you want. So, I mean, I think it is important to be calm if you can. I mean, emotions occasionally are important. We're all human. And I think, you know, the way you can be calm really is, is by doing preparation. If you know, if you've done all your homework and you feel comfortable, you know, confident on what you're presenting, you know, if you're comfortable with yourself and you back yourself, you know, I mean, I think it's important sometimes, you know, particularly when you're negotiating salaries or, or negotiating, you know, working hours you know sometimes people sell themselves a bit short particularly in salaries you know you kind of start to sort of say to yourself you know maybe I'm not worth that much or maybe I shouldn't do that and I mean I think that's a particularly I mean I'm not an expert in gender and negotiation but but there's a lot of research out there which shows that that women don't get as good deals mm. particularly in regard to pay as men do yeah quite often mm. because that it's not that they're not as good at negotiators but actually the research shows that that women tend to be more comfortable negotiating on behalf of an organization, on behalf of someone else, rather than on behalf of themselves. And, you know, they're worried they might be considered to be too pushy or too strident or all those kind mm. of stereotypes. Yeah. Which are all things that we're socialized exactly. Not, not, not to do. Absolutely. So let me ask you a challenging question and feel free not to answer. So now you're in lockdown with two teenagers. Yeah. Are you by yourself with two teenagers or have you got another half? No, I've got another half, got my American wife. And oh, yeah, you said, sorry. Uh, th this is what lockdown sleep deprivation does to you. Yes. Yeah, Anyways, so do you actually, like, in your private life, do you apply some of this? And how is it going? Uh, I mean, you always negotiate, basically. Everyone's negotiating the whole time. You know, whenever you're in dealings with someone who has slightly different preferences or priorities and you want to come to some mutually satisfactory decision, you're negotiating so you're negotiating with your two and four year old i'd imagine every night in terms of bedtime or you know go and have your bath or what story we're going to so i mean negotiation is the whole time 
I negotiate probably not as regularly now with my children, you know, as they get a bit older, but you still have big negotiations. You know, you have, you know, big negotiations about what subjects they should be doing at A-level, for example. I sort of did a lot of negotiating with my daughter about sort of what A-levels to do. And, and I think we're, I'm just as fallible as anyone else when it comes to negotiation. Mm. I tend to kind of fall into some of the traps, you know, where you, you know, you see it too much, too adversarial and, I'm not necessarily sure that a father negotiating with a teenage daughter is probably the best, the best <laughs> environment anyway. But yes, yeah, we negotiate with my wife. And yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, we don't need a transactional relationship. But negotiation is a very, it's a very, very human thing, you know. Mm. So obviously yeah. we negotiate at work, but we negotiate at, at home as well. So I make mistakes just like everyone else. I mean, one thing we do a lot of, talk a lot about on our negotiation programs, persuasion and how to persuade people and we we cite aristotle the greek mm-hmm. philosopher who's written a lot about persuasion and then another american academic called robert cialdini and there's these very very key concepts around how to influence people how to persuade people and, and we actually do a separate session on persuasion with the thinking that you know you can be a good negotiator but if you can be a good persuader as well you're an even more effective negotiator so, interesting i didn't actually consider the two being different but obviously they are now they are explaining are. it. So is there, I presume there's, given you're teaching a whole workshop on it, I presume there's not one simple thing you can do or is there with persuasion? What's the... Persuasion. Well, there's Robert Cialdini, Six Principles of Persuasion. I'm happy to talk to you a bit about those. Aristotle, I mean, his is probably the simplest, actually. He basically structured persuasion around three key concepts, logos, ethos, and pathos. Essentially, logos is logic. That's your message. That's your content you're trying to convey to someone else. And one of the key things about Logos is keep things simple. I mean, we are all hardwired to present huge amounts of information to each other. That's, we've learned that from school. You know, we've got lots of information. Mm, absolutely. All these huge PowerPoint slides. Keep things simple because otherwise people don't remember things. I think most people will agree with the idea of keeping things simple. But yeah. then when you do it, you end up with very long PowerPoint presentations. It's one of the hardest things to do, actually, is to to keep, you know, in a negotiation as well, you know, really focusing on Mm. what you want to achieve and, you know, keep it simple. Let me just ask, so on that keep it simple then, what is simple? So let's say you're asking for a £3,000 contribution from your employer towards a training course. How long should your business case be? How many reasons should you give them? Not too many. I think you say, this is, I would like you to make a £3,000 contribution, and these are three reasons why I think you should, because it's going to improve my productivity. It's, it's focusing on some particular leadership skills that are going to be particularly helpful for so-and-so company. And, you know, really focus on what's in it for your employer, why they should do it. Mm-hmm. And don't give them a 20-slide PowerPoint. Don't give them a 30-minute long monologue. Just give them two or three key takeaways as to why you should do that training course. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I can go through all these different principles of persuasion, but jumping from Aristotle to Robert Cialdini, one of his key principles is social proof. And that concept is the fact that we're guided by other people. So one thing you could use when you're trying to persuade someone to give you money for a training course is saying, look at so-and-so, you know, this company, they, they put 10 of their employers into this, employees into the training course. And, you know, look, look how successful they've been over the last year and a half. Or, or look, you know, this, this training course has been endorsed by the Financial Times. And so look for other sort of third parties to back mm. you up 
So, mm, interesting. And drafted you when you talked about Aristotle. So there's the logos, the logos one, and then okay, so what, what else? And that's the logic, that's the content. Mm-hmm. Then we have the ethos, which is the messenger. It's the characteristics of the messenger. So it's all about thinking, am I the right person to convey this message? You know, do I have the right authority? And it's by using different principles of persuasion to get your message across. You know, it's ethos, it comes actually from the Greek of ethics. So it's, you know, making sure you're an ethical person, you know, building up trust mm. about the concepts of relationships. So that's kind of the ethos. And the third one is called the pathos. And that is all about your audience. You've got to know your audience. You've got to put yourself, and this links back to negotiation, put yourself in the other side's shoes. So you've really got to focus on what your audience is interested in, what they want to hear about, and then you customize your message accordingly. So, you know, obviously you're in a negotiation about salary or something like that. You know, you need to sort of put yourself in the other side's shoes again and work out their pressures and why it would be beneficial to, you know, give you an enhanced salary or give you, you know, mm. additional training or other areas around, mm. around career development. Let's talk about salary. So there's a gender pay gap and I don't like it. We do know, based, you may correct me here, but we know that women ask for pay rises as much as men do, but they don't get them so much. Right. So what can we do to increase our chances to get pay rises in your view? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a number of means. This isn't just linked to women, but there's a number mm. of principles anyone can use to improve the opportunity of getting pay rises. And I'd also say, actually, there's, there's kind of research which shows that actually there's quite a lot of people, actually, particularly women, don't always ask for pay rises. They tend to accept what is offered to them rather than actually mm. negotiating on this. And I, I can, there was some research which came out of the States. A lady called Linda Babcock did some research on MBA students coming out of some of the leading business schools in the States. And they looked at the discrepancy in pay, you know, two years down the line. And what they found is that that a lot of women actually, when they did negotiate, they got just as good a deals as the men. But on a number of occasions, they actually just accepted what they were offered. So it's not always, Mm. always the case. But I mean, yeah, in terms of, in terms of, you know, how to negotiate a pay rise, I mean, firstly, obviously there's different contexts the whole time. So so there's never a sort of guarantee you'll get a pay rise. But a number of things I'd, I'd suggest, you know, is, is firstly prepare, as I said, you know, get as much information as you can, you know, find out what you're worth. Go out there in the market, find out what other people in comparable situations are paid. You know, there's a huge amount of stuff on the internet now. You can look to average salaries, certain companies, you know, I think it's Glassdoor, isn't it? The website you can go to. So, so really do your research and gather that information and, and try and avoid convincing yourself sometimes that you're not as worth as much as you are. Because if you can do that research and have that all that backup and justification, you're in a much stronger position. So, so that's one of the key things I suggest in terms of trying to get a, a salary increase. And also, you know, if you can put forward and suggest this is what you think you're worth, again, you're anchoring the, the discussion around a particular number. So that's good as well. The second thing is, ideally, it's good to have an alternative. Now, it's not always the case, but... And this is, again, is one of the biggest principles in negotiation. It's a jargon. It's a term called BATNA, which is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And basically what that means is that is the alternative if you don't go through with the negotiation. So, for example, if you were going to sell a car and you polished it and you were just about to put it on the market and your neighbor said, I really like that car, see how you get on advertising it, but 
you know, I'd be happy to pay £2,000 for it. So that's your alternative. You know, when you put the car in the, in the newspaper and advertise it and people make offers, that's your alternative if you don't go through with the negotiation. And the same thing in a job offer. You know, if, if you've got another comparable job offer from another company, that's your alternative if you choose not to accept this job offer. And we always say, you know, the stronger your baton, the stronger the alternative, the stronger you are in the negotiation because you can, you can walk away if it's not good enough for you, if it's not. I mean, you don't always have to negotiate. There are times when the status quo is better. So obviously it's not always the case, but in a salary review, if you can try and get other offers and try and get alternatives to, to what you're negotiating compared to the salary you're negotiating, that's even better. So that's another thing I'd suggest in our salary negotiations. And a third one sometimes is sort of thinking about other issues. I mean, you mentioned training opportunities, you know, see if you can, you know, add other issues to the table. So salary, bonus, that's all about contingencies, isn't it? So you might say, okay, you know, if you're not going to, you know, give me an extra 5,000 pounds, you know, how about, you know, if I meet, you know, our sales targets and I hit revenue of three and a half million by the end of the financial year, will you then be prepared to pay me a bonus of 5,000 pounds? So that's all about, contingencies and then adding other things to the negotiation as well training opportunities so again you know you might want to trade you know potentially a slightly lesser salary but having the opportunity to be you know having five thousand pounds invested in you to go and learn at a, a key business school so it's by adding these sort of issues as well you're more likely to get a good deal so so i mean those are the sort of and again put yourself in their shoes as well i mean you i think one of your your questions was you know how on earth can you go about trying to negotiate a salary increase at the moment or you know as we as we come out of lockdown during you know the COVID-19 when obviously a lot of businesses are struggling and and you need to be aware of that you need to have that antenna you know clearly if a company is 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 making significant redundancies you know this might not be the time to go and ask for a 25% pay increase Mm. so it's important to be aware of the context as well but I think you I mean back yourself you know it's easier said than done but you know as long as you do the preparation you believe in your worth you know, don't feel, mm. you know, don't hold back. And as, as long as employers can see where you're coming from, appreciate that you've understood their position, they're not necessarily going to throw it back in your face. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. What you just said there, it made me think about risk and obviously asking for a pay rise or doing any negotiation is taking a risk. And mm. I read some research that actually it's in Iris Bonner's book, uh, Gender Equality oh, by yeah. Design, which is brilliant. Well, she used to teach on our program, so I know yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, she's great. She, in her book, she discusses about how women are socialized to take fewer risks and when they take risks, sometimes they get punished more mm. as they are more likely to be sacked. There are certain people in the public eye that do things against the rules and there are some people who say that if away. it was a woman, it wouldn't be the same. <laughs> it yeah. wouldn't be quite the same outcome. I, I don't want to get into it in so much but detail, yeah. but actually, yeah, anyways, bottom line is I think negotiation is a risk and you need to be okay for that risk to, you know, for, yes. for that risk I mean, to go it's, back. Mm. It's less of a risk if you have a good alternative, mm. you know, where you have an alternative somewhere else to move to, a position to move to, if the negotiation isn't a success. I mean, it's obviously more of a risk if you have no alternative, then it is a potential risk. And, you know, you can't, you know, be sure how your negotiating counterpart is going to receive particular news or if they're going to get defensive. So, so yeah, sometimes there are, there are risks in life in general. 
But yeah, Eerie, so I couldn't really, but I know she's done a huge amount of research in terms of uh, risk related to the risk women take. But yes, I mean, there's always an element of risk. But I mean, I would argue in negotiation, I mean, the more, more research you do, and you know, if you, if you look at all the key principles, you know, you reduce the risk. And actually, it is a total, so one, I haven't heard of anyone who got sacked because they asked for a pay raise. Or I've, I've never heard of that as well. And you probably have quite a good case in the employment tribunals. Well, if, yes. If that did take place. Absolutely. But, and I think it's totally okay to ask for something, even if you don't get it. But what is tricky is, I think sometimes people ask for it, but then don't take the extra step of negotiation. Like yeah. what you describe, you know, that thinking, oh, I don't want to call it horse trading, but you know, doing that, I'm doing things with my hand, which now you can't see in the podcast, but basically that, that shifting and thinking about what could the other person value what else would i value that they can easily give me exactly um, hmm. yeah no I, I think you're right if you if you can you know i mean horse trading is one way of bartering or you know is uh, various terms for it trading across issues but i think you're right and i think if you do if you give justifications i mean if you go up to an employer and say i want you know a 50 percent pay increase their first question will be why you know why what's in it for me so again if you can justify it if you can build up the rationale why you think you're worth it you're going to be that much more effective in a negotiation. And that kind of links through to Aristotle a bit in terms of the strength of the argument, you know, so you need to sort of say, you know, look how successful I've been over the last six months. Look what I've achieved in terms of hitting these targets. Look at what's happened over the last three months. You know, I haven't been in the office at all. I've been working from home due to lockdown and, you know, the productivity is just as good as, as ever. But, you know, obviously I've been balancing it with looking after my family as well. So, I mean, I think there might be a sort of slightly different mindset towards you know, asking for more kind of creative working weeks because, you know, people have realized that you don't need to be in an office all day and, mm. you know, you can be just as effective, you know, with short bite-sized, you know, two hours here, two hours here pieces of work, you know, while you, you coordinate with other activities rather than, you know, working 10 hours straight. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Definitely. Do you have any views on setting boundaries? with people and saying, right, let's say my personal boundary might be that I never want people to call me after 8 p.m. in the evening. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that feeds into negotiation, but when you have complete red lines, how do you set them in a way that people are not going to be grumpy with you? I mean, I think it is important to set boundaries, particularly in terms of the logistics around a negotiation. And we, I mean, we talk about the process, how particularly long or complex negotiations the process you establish at the outset is really important for the success of the negotiation. If you have a strong process, it's your friend. It will support you when perhaps times get tough. So absolutely, I mean, I think at the outset, if you, you can say, you know, this is, these are my working hours, I won't be able to take calls after a certain amount of time. I mean, negotiations, you can discuss a huge amount of things at the beginning. You know, what are we negoti- going to negotiate? What are the timelines? Where are we going to negotiate? Sometimes in what languages are we going to negotiate? So absolutely, I think setting those parameters are really Mm. important. If you don't set those parameters and it's too fluid, you know, people might take advantage as well. Mm, That's true. You do get calls at two in the morning. And And actually, you know, what you just said made me think that coming back to the example of a flexible working request or a request to work three days a week, just to see that first discussion as part of a lengthy process and you say well actually let's first explore the potential 
risks and the potential mitigations and let me tell you what my desired situation is and why don't we test it for three months like you said and then evaluate have another meeting and then get feedback from colleagues and having that process defined in advance might be much more powerful than saying right let's have a one-off meeting yes or no yes absolutely and it sets expectations as well huh? And I think, you know, bringing in colleagues as well is very useful, you know. So, you know, I'll have a 360 degrees appraisal or review and see how things have worked afterwards. And I mean, I think the more you can sort of put forward proposals that this is how I intend to handle, you know, I, I'm managing a team of eight people. This is what I'll be doing. You know, we'll be meeting in person, you know, once a month. We'll be having, you know, weekly Zoom calls on the first, you know, at nine o'clock every Monday. So if you can set those processes in place, and it's less room for ambiguity, isn't it? It's less room for disappointment. And you have kind of clear measuring sticks as well, don't you? So you can really work out whether mm. it's successful. So Definitely, definitely. So many of our listeners are quite senior in their field and obviously are making decisions about money with mm. external partners. And I just want to make sure we cover that a little bit as well. So let me just try. This is going to be the test if I've listened carefully. But basically, what you should do is you should anchor whatever you're offering. So that your counterpart has a price in mind and compared to that price, whatever you're ready to go for is much cheaper. And then you should also think about your long-term process of that negotiation. Mm -hmm. And you should think about your audience and the argument, but also how you bring it across. Is there anything else that you should think about in order to make a really good negotiation happen for your organization? Uh, I mean, we spend a whole week talking about it. So there's quite a few other things. One thing I'd say about anchoring, anchoring is is good as long as you do your research and preparation. Mm. So the danger is if you anchor and you haven't done it, you'll put in, you know, an offer which is way outside what it should be. So it might be too low, it might be too high. So anchoring is good, but you need to be able to justify it and you need to do your research as well. If you don't do that, then you're, it's a bit of a risk. There's a, this is a totally different industry, but there's an example we use on the program was Brian Epstein, who used to manage the Beatles, and he, he was negotiating. It was, it was the Beatles' first film, A Hard Days and Night, and he was negotiating with a film company, United Artists, in terms of the percentage of the profits which should go to the band. And he went in there and he said, I'm going to accept 8%, and I'm not going any lower and United Artists said yes straight away which how did that make Brian Epstein feel well I'm sure you've you know if you've ever negotiated and someone says yes you know they can't shake your hand fast enough and get the deal you think oh maybe I didn't do my research properly and, and in that case he was actually applying the business practices in the music industry which were around about seven percent when actually in the film industry United Artists would have been prepared to pay up to 20 percent so in that situation he anchored but he anchored way too low Mm. He was applying what he knew in one industry to another and he hadn't done the necessary research. So, mm. so that's the main caveat in terms of mm. anchoring is really do your research beforehand. Yeah, that's an excellent so point. Take that into a salary negotiation, find out your market worth. You know, mm. So there's a danger, I mean, particularly if you're going to, going to a new job. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're in an existing job, you have a current salary as a, as a basis to negotiate around. But if you go in and they say, you know, how much do you want, want us to pay you and you haven't done your research and you, you put in a figure way below what you should be getting and that's not a good anchor. <laughs> mm, absolutely. And the power of the, your network is going to be so important there because a lot of these things you can't find by searching online. You, it, you can, of course, but actually the conversation you will have with people who are 
in that industry will be invaluable. So it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. The power, power of the network and just gathering information. I mean, it's not always easy to gather information, but there are opportunities to do that. And actually, when you're negotiating, you can gather a lot of information from your negotiation counterpart. So one of the other things we talk about in negotiation, one of the most important things is listening. And we're not always terribly good at listening. I mean, I'm, I've been sort of taught to listen. I'm actually also a trained business coach. And one of the most important things you learn as a business coach is to listen. You know, it's, the, it's called active listening, to be there in the absolute moment. So you're not listening and just thinking, you know, how does it apply to me or what my next question is going to be. You're just listening and just seeing where the conversation takes you. And you can get a huge amount of information from people little kind of nuances around negotiation just by listening to them. So even, you know, when you go into a negotiation with an employee, you know, listen to them, you know, ask them questions about what their challenges are, what their pressures are. And, you know, through that, you can sometimes get a lot of information and get a, a deal, which is high value to both sides. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. That's been really thought provoking and I'm extremely grateful. I feel like I've had a personal, like an MOT on, <laughs> on negotiation. So thank you so much. Is there anything else that we should have said you I want to add? So. I mean, was that the kind of thing you were looking for? That's perfect. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, has been really, really thought provoking. And yeah, it's been, I think having that rigorous insight of someone like you who's teaching people how to do it is really important because we don't always look at flexible working and so on as a negotiation piece but it really is um so it's if people, anything, you know it's yeah. it absolutely it totally applies and if you can use those principles in negotiation and let me tell you so one sort of final thing about you know the whole idea that people have different interests and this is a story that is used on many many negotiation courses it's called the story of the orange you basically got two children a brother and a sister fighting over the orange, you know, they want this orange, you know, so they're going back and forth and the dad comes in, you know, and, you know, the obvious, you know, tries to kind of calm things down. The obvious thing to do is to cut the orange in two and, you know, give half to each. But if you're really smart, you'll ask the question, why do you want the orange? You know, what are your interests? Why is the orange important to you? And for one of the children, the orange was important because they wanted to have some orange juice. So they took the peel off, threw it away, and then squeezed some orange juice and had a nice glass of orange juice. And the other child, they actually wanted the peel to provide zest for a cake. So they weren't interested in the actual orange itself. It was just the peel. So if you found that out, of course, you would meet both sides' interests and you wouldn't need to cut the orange up and just have half each. So, mm. uh, so that's a kind of, it's a good illustration of why it's important to just find out what people's interests are kind of you know people go into negotiations with positions sometimes but it's the interests which underpin those positions and if you can find out what their interests are you can mm. quite often get to a deal so it's the same concept you know when you're dealing with an employer as well what are their interests what do they want to get out of it you know it might not be a massive issue to them to give you you know a relatively small pay increase if there's other areas that you can add value to them for mm, mm, absolutely and i love this idea and reminder with orange of thinking about what is it that they want rather than making an assumption, which we always do and fall mm. into. So if people want to find out more about your work, where's the best way to look? Well, I'd suggest they go to the Oxford Programme Negotiation, the website, which tells you about the programme. And there's information on me on the site as well. And, you know, if they're interested, I can send you an, an email address. But if people like information on particular books to read and, and things like that, they'll be very welcome to contact me. 
That sounds great. Uh, Excellent. So that's, uh, I'll just read it out for people. It's www.sbs.ox.ac.uk forward slash programs forward slash Oxford hyphen program hyphen negotiation. And uh, what is this book that you mentioned? What was the man's name? Chardini? Uh, sorry, yes, that was Robert Cialdini, and the book is called Influence, and it's, I think it's been translated into about 30 languages worldwide, yeah. and it's a very easy-to-read book, but it talks about, and there's a number of principles, obviously, I haven't talked about today, but it, it's, you know, if, if you use these principles, you are going to be more effective in influencing people. And it's, Fantastic. Uh, influence the Psychology of Persuasion. That's great. So it's Robert Cialdini, which is C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. Brilliant. That's right, yes. Excellent. Well, it's really lovely to chat to you and to learn from you today. Thank you so much. And hopefully we can stay in touch and, yeah, all the best for the future. And keep keep safe, safe and sane with everyone in the same house. that's right. Yeah, I'm pretty sane at the moment. Excellent. (laughs) But anyway, very nice to meet you, Farid, anyway. Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye, Paul. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much for listening today. I do hope you enjoyed the conversation. I would love to spread this message that it is okay to be still ambitious as a parent and to still want to continue your career whilst bringing up young children. I would love to spread this message further. And someone asked me the other day what my hopes and goals are for the podcast. And I realized I would love it if by September we can get to a thousand listeners. So it would be amazing if you could share it with your friends, with your family, on social media. And also, of course, if you can give a five-star review on whatever platform you're using. Um, Also, if you want to stay in touch with the work of Leaders Plus, then do subscribe to our newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. And that's where you will receive invitations to some of our upcoming events, as in online events, of course. And also, you will receive further details about any programs that we're running. Until next time, have a wonderful week and thank you all so much for your support.